0: What's good? Everybody all right? Oh, so this side is still making up their mind about that. Morning people all over here. Oh, man, it's good to be back at uh, Nine Marks at Southeastern. This is uh, easily one of my two or three favorite gatherings in any given year, Uh, and it's because of you. It's because of the opportunity to be home in North Carolina and to be with North Carolinians, the last people in the country, apparently, who still know how to use the proper bathrooms. You know, (laughs) just saying, just saying. You guys are holding the line down here, man. Yeah good to be with North Carolinians, man, because North Carolinians are, are hospitable, man. You're just, you're just good people, as we say, right? I came to my room in Boswick. Um, I used to get the same room every year. I like that. I feel like I'm coming home. And, and every year, they, they practice hospitality. They do sweet things. And this year, there were some young ladies that put together a nice gift basket. And, and you know, it's, it's You love getting those baskets, it's kind, and and you're also sad about it because, you know, you can't take that basket with you back on the plane, right? And so you, you got all these goodies and you're thinking, okay, what do I put in my backpack? What do I leave here? I hope somebody can use it. And just as I'm sort of giving up on the basket because there's like granola in it, right? I see these beautiful white things. I haven't seen them in years. Every Friday, as a little boy, when my uncle got paid, he would bring them to me, powdered donuts. <laughs> and I snuck back to the room at the break yesterday, and I kicked off my shoes, and I sat on the end of the bed like that little boy just swinging his legs, get covered in powdered <laughs> donuts, man. <laughs> it was the good stuff, man, it was the good stuff. You guys know how serious I am about my diet. Last year, I think I came and announced the launch of a new initiative to free Americans from dietary totalitarianism, (laughs) to get the country to put stuff back in our food that they had taken out, like monosodium glutenate, affectionately known as MSG, gluten, sugar. And the campaign has had some advances and some setbacks. We have gained some members. Some of you care less about your bodies than I do. But I have to confess, I've fallen. I had an infiltrator in my home. She cooks for me. (laughs) She was taking stuff out of my food and she put me on this diet called Whole30, which is false advertising because you only get to eat about half of the stuff that, you know, (laughs) and zero sugar. And I've been on this thing for about 45 days. It's supposed to be 30 days. She snuck some pages off the calendar or something. So 45 days in, and I like it. I feel better. I used to be on a first-name basis with sugar, an everyday relationship with sugar. Now I eat sugar, I get headaches. I don't know what to think about my wife, though. This morning I was thinking about that, that variety of spiders where you know the spouse eats the spider when, when she's done with him. It, it seemed to me like a more humane death than a diet. <laughs> I have never been able to figure that out. Why women think they love you by feeding you less? What is that? Anyway. We didn't come to talk about that. I, I, I think one of the marks of a healthy church ought to be something about eating what you want. We need a whole conference on that, brother. All right? We're out of the nine marks. It's the, like 13th mark. Anyway, I'm sorry. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we do praise you for your word that you have loved us enough to speak to us. We we didn't know what your voice sounded like. We didn't know your thoughts. Our thoughts were not your thoughts. Our ways were not your ways, and we were far off from you. Even if we praised you with our lips, Lord, before you saved us, our, our hearts were far away. But then you spoke to us. The word of life came to us. And by your word, you made us new. By faith in your word, by trusting in the promise of your gospel and the finished work of Christ, your son, we were born again. And you began to renew our minds and you continue to speak to us and you continue to speak to us now by your word. And, and now, Lord, we, we delight to hear your voice in your word and to know what thus saith the Lord. We are your servants, Lord. Speak to us. Speak to us plainly. Speak to us powerfully. Speak to us helpfully. All that you would have us to know from this time. Bless the reading, the hearing, the preaching of your word. Let us see Christ and the beauty of his bride. In Jesus' name. Amen. The pastorate is a fraternity, a brotherhood. When we're together, we do what brothers do. We discuss or argue about what pastors discuss or argue about. Preaching, theology, the churches we shepherd, and sports. We laugh together. We counsel one another. We plot and scheme for the advance of the gospel. And in some ways, these gatherings, these confabs, are like a 360-degree evaluation or a job review. We, we hit the major bullets on our job descriptions, and we reflect together on our progress and our struggles. In nearly all the meetings I've had with my fellow pastors, we, we come to those areas where we feel ill-equipped, ineffective, perhaps even discouraged. One man mourns his prayer life. Another feels hopeless about evangelism. Uh, Still another recounts leadership challenges. Someone wants to improve their preaching. And so we all share our wisdom, our common struggles, and offer encouragements. But in all this talk over the years, I've come to believe that the most neglected aspect of a pastor's job description is the command for pastors disciple older women in their congregations. It's a massive omission since women make up at least half of our local churches. It's a massive omission since women have an equal and necessary part in the Great Commission. When you consider how many ministries and committees depend upon the genius, the generosity, and the sweat of our sisters, it's almost criminal that, that most any pastor you meet has no intentional plan for discipling the women of his church apart from his regular pulpit ministry or perhaps a women's ministry and a women's ministry staff person. So my hope is that we might leave here with a resolve to correct that omission wherever we see it in our ministries. To do that, I want us to think about Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And as we look at Titus 2, 1 to 10, I want us to make three observations. I want us to observe, number one, the basic responsibility that Paul gives this pastor, Titus. The basic responsibility there in Titus 2, verse 1. And then I want to observe, number two, the particular applications that we see in verses 2 to 10, the particular applications of that that basic responsibility. And finally, I want us to observe in 11 to 14, the gospel foundation for it all, the the gospel foundation for it all. So the basic responsibility, the particular application, and the gospel foundation of this ministry of discipleship. Look with me in Titus 2, beginning in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young men to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's look first at the basic charge. You see it there in verse 1, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, there's a context to this statement, and the context of this statement we find back at the end of chapter 1, that last paragraph there. Let me read that for you. Chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. (laughs) This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Read that and you go, whoo I mean, there are the false preachers there in verses 10 and 11. These are corrupt men. Notice they are deceivers, right? Insubordinate, empty talkers. And they have a corrupt message. They have added to the gospel circumcision. They have falsified the gospel by adding to Christ. Christ plus anything equals nothing, right? And they not only are corrupt men with a corrupt message, but they have a corrupt motive. Notice, they teach what they teach at the end of verse 11 for shameful gain. These are the original prosperity preachers. And notice, these false preachers are preying upon fallen people, verses 12 to 15. Paul quotes there one of the Cretans, they're always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And the apostle here, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, This is true. They are people of corrupt minds. Verse 15, their minds and their consciences are defiled. And, and when you get false preachers going to fallen people, all you can ever result, have result are, are fake professions. That's what we see in verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the Cretan context. The worst part of the Cretan culture is this nominalism, this spiritual self-deception of people praising God or confessing God with their lips, but their hearts being very far away from Him. Now, I wonder what context you think of when you read these verses about Crete. It's very common that people will think of like the neighborhoods I minister in. Southeast Washington, D.C., one of the poorest sections of the city, the highest crime rates in the city, lowest educational attainment in the city, all of the sort of social maladies measured, studied, documented, reported. And and we think, okay, that's Crete. Never say it out loud, but that's what people think. That's where the lazy, gluttonous, evil people are. But I'm convinced that if you cross the bridge back over into the western side of the city and go to a place like Capitol Hill, that's Creek too. You don't stop being a Cretan because you put on a pinstripe suit and you go to a government office. There are lazy beasts and evil gluttons and and all that good stuff on Capitol Hill and, and in every part of the city. I just want to suggest to you that wherever you live, if there are fallen people, you live in Creek. And the question is this, how do you get Cretans to become Christians? How how do you go from what's described in the end of chapter one, and all of the problems that are so obvious to see, and so uh, sort of staggering in their obviousness that the Apostle Paul just says, you know what, this is just true. How do you go from that to the life we see laid out for us, for older men, younger men, older women, younger women, in chapter two? The answer, very simply, is gospel discipleship. A little bit more specifically, gospel and, or excuse me, gender and generation-specific discipleship. So consider the charge that Paul gives Titus here in chapter 2, verse 1. What's what's the basic responsibility here? He says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. But as for you, sets Titus apart from all those false teachers that are teaching false things with a wrong motive. He says, now, Titus, as a real minister of the gospel, you don't associate yourself with all of that stuff. You You don't sort of give in to that form of life. As for you, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. Uh, To teach means to instruct, to systematically transfer knowledge, skills, abilities. The teaching ministry of the local church is absolutely essential to the health of the Christian life. We, we, We don't learn to live as Christians without someone teaching us, without the work of discipleship being carried on in our lives. This is why Paul mentions it so much. You see it there in in verse 1 of chapter 2, but as for you, teach what accords to sound doctrine. Just before that, chapter 1, verse 13, he says there, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. That's another form of teaching. And this is why when he says, hey, when you set things in order, you're to look for men, Titus 1, verse 9, you're to look for men who may be able to give instruction, In sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. The reason every church wants theologically sound elders is because every church should be planted in a Cretan context and they should be able to do two things to both advance the gospel and everything that's sound and to hold the line against everything that's corrupt. The teaching ministry of the church is absolutely vital. Now notice, again, in verse 1, Titus must teach the Cretans sound doctrine. That word sound means healthy, basically. Doctrine, as you know, is another word for teaching. So I love this. I love this. God intends broken people to believe and to know healthy teaching. He wants little people to have great theology. He sends Titus to Crete not as an adder, a matter of accident, not as a matter of, merely of, of circumstance. God intends to establish his church among a people that the world has written off. And he intends that his way of life would be transferred to them by the teaching ministry, the disciple-making ministry of the church. And so Paul calls Titus here to teach sound doctrine. And very often that phrase, sound doctrine, in the writings of Paul, is associated with the gospel itself. It's associated with the, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is. And as, as, as Danny Akin taught to us uh, in the first session, and, and what he has done for us, and, and, and what he requires of us. Now, this all seems very basic, doesn't it? And it is. But I, I want us to value it Rightly. It seems that God's strategy for transforming culture, if you like that language, I don't, but God's strategy for transforming culture is not fancy apologetics and sophisticated philosophies and cultural fluency. God's plan for transforming culture is the transformation of persons. He accomplishes person transformation through gospel evangelism and discipleship, through teaching what accords with sound doctrine. So, you want to change your creed, you want to change the culture, so to speak, then think in terms of changing persons, teaching persons how to live in a manner consistent with the calling of the gospel. Make disciples. Now, notice the particular application. Paul sort of fleshes this out. Or I should say one other thing about um, verse 1. Note note this closely. The, The text does not say, teach sound doctrine. The text says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The sound teaching, the healthy teaching is the foundation that must be taught. But what Paul is concerned with and what we're concerned with in the process of making disciples is we're concerned with the cultivation of a lifestyle that matches that teaching. He's concerned with teaching them how to live. He's concerned with teaching them how to walk out the truths that they have learned. And and listen, beloved, we we do. One of the besetting uh, sins or weaknesses of, of the evangelical church right now, particularly in reform persuasions, is we're all head and no hands. We're all doctrine and no duty. We're all teaching and no transformation. Mark alluded to this a moment ago. It's not about teaching the 75-year-old man in your congregation, you know, how to parse election. That's fine, it has its place, but he needs to know how to live as a Christian at the age of 75, which is different from how do you live as a Christian at the age of 25. What we're after, the purpose of teaching, is transformation, the living in accord with The life that goes with sound doctrine. Now, notice the particular application. Paul doesn't just stop with that that charge generally. In verse 1, he begins to unpack it. He elaborates this charge with particular application to gender and generational lines. In other words, disciple-making is not one-size-fits-all. There are particular marks and goals associated with both age and gender. And Paul here refers to these sort of four demographic groups in the church, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. And and he he refers to these categories often. So back in 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2, he he writes this, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, the the older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. You may have a translation that says with absolute purity. So in chapter 5, he's talking about the manner in which we engage these different demographic groups in the church. The older men and women are like fathers and mothers, and you encourage them and respect them as if they were your own parents. The younger men and women are like brothers and sisters, and so you also encourage them and treat them as you would a brother or sister. Ladies with absolute purity. Younger brothers with, with encouragement and as if you were a father. That's the manner. Now, what's the message? What's the substance? That's what we're given in Titus chapter 2. Think about these four categories of persons for a moment. Older men, verse 3, older women. Verse 4, the young women are mentioned. Verse 6, the young men. Let me ask you a question. How would you order these four categories of people from most attention in disciple-making in your church to least attention in disciple-making in your church. How would, they, how would they sort of shake out? How would they rank? Who gets the most instruction? Who receives the least, do you think? And I'm not speaking so much here of the pulpit ministry for everyone who comes to the morning service is participating in the, in the pulpit ministry, the, the hearing of the word of God there. That's necessary, but, but the detail that we're giving here in these verses suggests to us that it's not, it's not sufficient, that there is some particular application that needs to go on with, with each of these groupings. And so when it comes to that particular application and disciple-making, who gets the most attention in your church and who gets the least Now, you can tell me if you think otherwise in the panel or or after the service today, but I think it's the young men who often get the most attention. And we can tell why from a couple of places in the Scripture. It's, it's natural it, to be bent that way because Second 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, which was referenced early, it's find those men, train them, teach them that they may be able to, to teach others also. Insofar as the, the teaching ministry of the church, the, the pulpit ministry, and the leadership of the church is in God's design, restricted to qualified men. Well, the, the pastor's not doing his job if he's not invested in such men. And verse 6 gives us another reason. Urge the young men to be (laughs) self-controlled. In other words, them rascals out of control, man. You got to get a harness on them busters, man. (laughs) And Think of how many things take over in our lives when we don't control ourselves. I mean, self-control affects our spending and our finances. It affects our temper and our actions. It affects our sexual lives. The man who gives into pornography lacks self-control. The man who spends more than he makes lacks self-control. The man who's always lusting after women lacks self-control. The man who drinks and drugs himself nearly to death, that man is out of control. The man who can't keep a job lacks self-control. Almost all the issues of a man's life come back to self-control. This fruit of the Spirit, this training of grace is foundational to being a man, a woman, and a leader. So notice in Titus's letter, it, it appears almost everywhere. It's part of the qualification for elders. The older men are to be self-controlled. I think when he says older women are to be reverent, that at least implies self-control. He says again explicitly for the young women here. The cultivation of this sort of self-possession is at the heart of what it means to live a Christian life and to be maturing in Christ. And nothing so vital for young men that they be taught this, to harness themselves. First up, I think young men get the most attention. Next up I think is young women. Seems to me the church understands the need to invest in young women. Conservative evangelical churches talk at length about God's complementarian design for the church and the home. We hold pre-conferences about it. We write on blogs about it. We publish entire books about it. We discuss it on videos. In fact, in some cases, it seems to me that the only vision Christian leaders have for women is work in the home. Now, Don't get me wrong. Verses 4 and 5 hold out to us a partial vision of the good life. So train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. That's good. That's right. That's beautiful. And one of the evidences of the, the seductiveness and the sedition of Satan is how he has twisted the beauty of this picture and made it unpleasant to men and women. No, this this is good and right and whole. It's, it's to be longed for, it's to be prepared for, it's to be taught, it's to be enjoyed. Keep in mind that the false preacher's ministry in Titus 1, verse 11, look back there, look at the effect of it. Titus chapter 1, verse 11, they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. what they ought not to teach. So their motive was gain, but look at the destruction that's happening in households by not instructing people in what God has said about the home, about the family, about gender, and about virtue. This is vital, and it should be taught. But we must not read the Bible as if women are only in view when the home and child rearing are explicitly mentioned. The entire Bible is for the entire woman. That must be our approach. And and I think we're too often lacking in this regard. And so our, our visions for female discipleship get constricted in ways that almost suggest that Matthew 28 doesn't apply to our sisters. And so there's more teaching to be done for younger women, even though I think they maybe are second in order of attention. Then maybe our older men, I think they get a little attention. Usually attention comes from a desire for elders, and it's natural to consider older men as potential candidates for the office. So we understand, again, the necessity of what's said of older men in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, and in steadfastness. What a beautiful picture of manhood. What a glorious picture of maturity as a man. Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. He no longer needs to be urged to exercise self-control. He's mastered it. and He's sound. He's healthy in faith. He has a healthy faith. He has a healthy love. He has a healthy steadfastness. Here's a man who cannot be easily shaken. His feet are planted firmly. He's taken his stance with Christ and he does so not in all the boisterousness of youthfulness and all the combativeness of someone who is not self-controlled. He does so with the settled confidence of a man whose mind is made up and fixed on Christ. He's the kind of man who walks into a room and everybody straightens up. There's gravitas about him. He hadn't said a word. He hasn't threatened anybody. He hadn't beat anybody with a cane. He just walks into the room and, knowing the character of his person, people stop acting foolish. I love that word, dignified. This is what God is producing in his men through his church as they are discipled and taught to live in accord with sound doctrine. And I think our older men need more investment. But perhaps the group that has the least amount of investment in our churches, and again, you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, I could be. It seems to me that of the four groups, the persons getting the least amount of discipleship attention are the older women, of our congregations. The intentional teaching, discipling, and equipping of older women strike me as the most neglected part of the pastor's job description. I read a tweet the other day, interacting with some people about something I had written, and one person wrote to me, a a young woman, middle age, I, I assume, and said, I've been the sort of leader of my church's bookstore ministry for 10 years. And the only theological instruction I've gotten from my church is what I've gotten by selecting books for myself and reading. I go, huh. Not true, that's a good thing. So quick, how many pastors have you known or can you name who have an active, intentional teaching ministry to the older ladies in his church besides or in addition to the general pulpit ministry? The pulpit ministry counts, but I suspect Paul has something else in mind in these verses because the emphasis on Christian living is so robust that it's it's difficult to imagine teaching all the things that need to be taught via the pulpit. And I don't know many pastors who meet regularly with the older women of their churches, who read with them, who talk with them, who instruct them in reverent behavior. The things we see here, verse 3 Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, to teach them those character things befitting the gospel, but also to teach them a competence. They are to teach what is good to the younger women. And what a picture of older women here, like the older men, regal, dignified. She's learned to not slander. She's not given to much wine. She probably shops at Jones, New York, rather than Forever 21. (laughs) Nothing quite as misplaced as a 50-something-year-old in Forever 21. It's like, baby, give it up. It's all right. (laughs) You know, you know. There, there is dignity in old age. And, and and man, don't don't we live in a culture that, that actually sort of imagines that women age out of beauty? That women age out of attractiveness? And we live in a culture that is always idolizing youth and youthfulness and and as a consequence always losing the wisdom of age. And Paul says, God says, through Paul, listen, no, I have a vision for older women, wherein older women do not age out of beauty, nor do they age out of usefulness. The older they get, the more useful they are to the disciple-making ministry of the church. So you see the turn there in verse 5, and so that they may train younger women in all those things that we were just talking about. The older women in your congregation are, I think, in God's design, meant to be a significant platoon of disciple-makers who, who turn and, and do the kind of disciple-making work that men should not do. You've heard it said a number of times that we disciple in gender groups. Right? We, we stay in our lane, right? You don't want Pastor T teaching you if you're a 25, 30-year-old woman how to love a husband and how to care for children. You don't want that because I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why my wife stayed with me for almost 25 years. You know, how she put up with men. You need her to tell you and how to raise children and how to be self-controlled. And you need her to be the best one to help you think about purity chastity, virtue, modesty. You know, when the pastor shows up and starts talking about women, you need to be modest. It's it's awkward from the start, isn't it? Because you're like, well, what you been looking at? (laughs) You know, and he trying to tell you he saw you without looking at you, right? You know, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you know, we need to be modest (laughs) around here, you know. But but here's a hint, if your pastor preaches, looking at the ceiling, you you can look, older ladies look around and and figure out who needs to have this lesson from you. But I I had, and I trust that you have too, I have seen older ladies come up next to a younger sister and whisper in her ear, let me talk to you for a minute, and speak to them in such a loving way like a mother about something like dress and what it communicates, about their hearts and why it led to that dress in a way that's far more effective than anything that I could ever do. I've seen older women open their lives to younger women about things like being married to an unbelieving husband and how to persevere in that marriage in prayer. And how to work through the the hard things of being unequally yoked in that marriage with with perseverance and with faith and with dignity and and not slandering their husbands, but loving them. I've seen older women just talk about the Lord in a way that made him four-dimensional and real and present. My grandmother, just to, she used to have her little talks with Jesus. And Jesus was in the room. There's no doubt about it to me. I, I mean, in the room, not just theologically, academically, like, you know, I know he's omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere, but I can't kind of touch him. No, I mean, in the room as if he was in the rocker across from her talking. These are older women who made Jesus, who first made Jesus plausible to me because they walked with him, and they talked about it, and they transferred that. And so you got this picture here of of a significant contingent of of our army being employed fully in the basic mission of the church of making disciples. And the question is, do we have a a corresponding strategy for making sure the older women are not on the sidelines, but actually are in the game? And the older women are not kind of set aside and left to just grow old, as if not useful. But the older women are invited in and engaged and instructed in order to acknowledge their usefulness, to cultivate it, and to employ it. Think of the negative effects of neglecting older women in our ministries. I mean, that neglect shows up in the seemingly unending march of marriage counseling sessions that we have with couples who haven't learned the lessons of Titus 2. It shows up in the sneaking suspicion among some of the women in our church that we favor men rather than women. It shows up in the continuing concern that there's no place for women in the church. It, it, It manifests itself in the feeling of oppression or marginalization, that many serious and saintly women sometimes express. And the neglect of older women in our church, you know it shows up in the time, money, and energy invested in women's ministries that sometimes actually veer away from the church's core mission. Shows up in the isolation, discouragement, and sense of hopelessness that uh, some women experience. In the incalculable loss of wisdom when older saints aren't equipped and organized to share with others. We could go on, but you see the point. A great treasure is lost, and and much pain multiplied when we pastors neglect this aspect of our job description. But on the other hand, think of the blessings, the benefits. There's too many to, to number. First of all, pastor, there's just simply the joy of obeying the Lord's instruction in Titus 2. Uh, The sense that you're going to hear the well done, now good and faithful servant, for the application to this part of the congregation. Then there's the getting to know the older women of the church in a spiritual way. And the older women teach us a great deal if we listen. The older women will begin to feel shepherded, cared for. They have a sense of attachment to the whole church and to the leadership of the church beyond the times where they may be hospitalized. They, they have a sense of belonging. They, they make healthy contributions to the church. They, they're no longer the, the block of members that some pastors fear will make ministry difficult because they don't want to change. They become allies rather than hindrances in our minds. Then there are the benefits of the congregation and the ministry at large. When we, when we invest in older women, we have, a, as I said before, a multiplied force of disciple-makers, The gender-specific discipleship needs of women are more effectively met. The younger women have a greater sense of belonging too, of of being intentionally helped, of of working through their pursuit of Christ as women. The the wisdom of older saints gets applied to their lives. the Marriages and homes, if we look at verse 5, marriages and homes, 4 and 5, excuse me, marriages and homes will in time be strengthened. Children will be evangelized and discipled. The youthful conflict, the fleshly conflict that comes from gossip and slander, is dried up. The pastor's counseling docket is kept under control. And notice, it's said a number of times here, but in the end of verse 5, the word of God may not be reviled. This is leading to one of the most effective apologetics for the word of God. The fruit that's born in the lives of older women, which is transferred, transferred to the lives of younger women, is one of our best defense for the integrity and the goodness and the usefulness and the wisdom of God's word. And here's one more benefit. We invest in older women. And by older, I mean, say, let's take the list of widows in 1 in Timothy. Let's say 60 and over. We invest in older women, an appropriate appropriate distance is put between the male pastors and the young women of the church, helping to protect us from moral failure. Don't we need that? We could go on, but the benefits are legion. Older women need instruction in both character and competence, able to teach. The church walks with a limp if it fails to invest in older women who will in turn teach younger women. And this omission hinders more than half the members of our church if it goes on. So brothers, give the older women a vision for their own increasing beauty in in Christ and their utter necessity to the Great Commission. That's what I think Titus 2 is holding out for us in application to that. Now, all of this, as we conclude, rests on a gospel foundation. Look again with me in verses 11 to 14, these well-loved verses. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In a sense, the the presence or absence of disciple-making in our churches tells us something about our understanding of the gospel itself. The very grace, verse 11, that appears in Christ and in his incarnation and in his work on the cross and his his death for our sins and his resurrection and his coming again, the very grace of the gospel that saves us, notice, also sanctifies us. That grace teaches us. Verse 12, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So to say no to the old life And it also trains us to live, there it is again, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And so grace teaches us to say yes to, to holiness, to sanctification, to progress in the faith. In other words, to live a life that accords with the gospel. So there's a symbiotic relationship between the gospel message and the gospel life. The message produces the life and the life protects the message. The message pushes forth in transformed living. And that transformed living adorns the doctrine of our God. So we saw the end of verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. But is there also in verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. That's the result of of the preachers preaching with integrity and modeling every good word. Or in verse 10, The reason slaves are to be submissive to their masters is so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God. You see? Whether we disciple others to live out sound doctrine affects how others see the word of God. Our maturity depends upon our message. It's how we silence opponents. It's how the the world gains respect for us if they ever are going to respect us. It's how the teaching about God our Savior becomes beautiful even in Cretan context. Our defense of the gospel must be done with words, but not with words alone. If that's the case, we're the empty talkers at the end of chapter 1. It must also be beautified by our lives. I'm inclined to think that there are a good number of professing Christians who should stop talking and arguing so much, especially reform types, and start living better. So, how do we wrap this up? What to do? You say, Thabiti, I'm interested to invest in the older women of my congregation. I recognize uh, from God's word and in my experience their, their value and, and our need for them and the need of younger women for them. What do I do? Well, let me sort of offer a few things and then we'll conclude. First, repent privately and publicly if you think you've neglected the older women in your church. turning again to God for help and turning to the saints just might open up a fruitful dialogue and meaningful relationships. So let's repent of this if we feel like we have sinfully neglected our sisters. Secondly, let's do a lot of listening. If meeting with the women of church hasn't been a part of your ministry, if that listening has largely been one-on-one personal conversation rather than a more systematic discussion of ministry to women in the church, then don't assume... We shouldn't assume that we know what the women think or how they feel or what they need. We should listen, ask lots of questions, and sit back patiently. Having repented, hopefully we can learn from our sisters without feeling attacked or criticized or rejected. We listen, we learn, and we list out the themes that we hear. Number three. Identify some older women in the congregation who would be willing to study with you, or perhaps you and your wife if you're a lone elder, uh, if you're there with multiple elders, with, with a group of your elders who would, who would sit with you and, and some group of leadership to sort of talk about how to advance the disciple-making or discipleship among the younger women. You can identify them simply by asking who's interested or by specific in- invitation. Form a small group to to read a book like Spiritual Mothering or Women's Ministry in the Local Church or Word-Filled Women's Ministry. Start slow, start small. If this hadn't been a part of your church's uh, ministry, then it's like it's like it can be intimidating for some women. Right? Build their confidence with encouragement and patience. Help them see God's great vision for them in places like Titus 2. Help them understand that their ministry is as vital to the gospel's advance and proclamation and living out uh, to the lives of fellow members as your own ministry is. And then fourth, begin to pair the older ladies up with younger ladies endless number of ways that you can do this. And not one size fits all. It's not one application of this. Maybe it's some one-on-one relationships or maybe starting new small groups or, or maybe there are specific aspects of the faith. Faith, as I said before, say living faithfully with an unbelieving spouse that one or two older members have experiences with and, and would love to help one or two younger women with. You know, maybe you help those ladies host special fellowships or Perhaps, again, a tailored small group for a specific period of time. Listen to the ladies as they generate ideas for serving and and help them get involved with the younger women uh, of the church. Fifth, have the entire church pray for these ladies as they study and prepare. While I was serving at First Baptist Church in Grand Cayman, our our women's ministry director, Meg Bodden, she suggested that we take a, a few minutes on a Sunday morning just to pray for the older women who were, who were stepping more fully into this disciple-making role. The church had not had that before. We were sort of ambling and, and stumbling our way through this, and Meg was doing a wonderful job, and it, and it just seemed good and right that we would pray for them and set them apart for this and encourage them in this. And so what a wonderful morning it was to have those 20 older saints, gray hair, regal, come forward. And we just pray for them as a congregation. They were a little sheepish and shy at first and they bowed their heads as we began to pray. But in that, in that exchange, in that moment, you know, there they they were, even in that prayer, contacts being made, uh, affection being stirred, appreciation being exhibited. Many of these women have been and will continue to serve quietly in their background, but it's, it's good for us to give greater honor to the parts of the body that lack it. The most significant and yet unused disciple-making resource we have in our churches are the older faithful women among us. It's to our shame if as pastors we don't have a strategy for investing in them and seeing them invest in others. But it will be to our joy and for the church's strength if we do. Let me say just a word here to those of you who are church planters. Resist the delusion that church planting is a young person's game. We're glad you're directing your youth and your energy toward it. Keep doing that. But a church is a multi-generational family. And you will find, I think, greater ballast in the boat of your plant if you actually seek out, invite, include, involve older saints, more seasoned than yourself. And you will see them sort of keep you steady. They will be counselors to you. They will pray effectively for you. They will be the persons in the congregation that when you have other visitors who come and and who are older themselves, who recognize, oh, there's a place here for me as an older person. And they will lift part of the load for disciple-making in the local church. May the Lord give us grace and wisdom to love the older saints, to encourage them, and to see them be fruitful in our churches. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have designed life in such a way that the natural trajectory is toward age. We're not Benjamin Buttons getting younger. No, you have rather intended that the process of living, and especially living for you and with you, will be a process that engenders more and more dignity and reverence, gravity and wisdom. And you have deposited that in the older saints. Give us eyes to recognize it. Give us wisdom to engage it. Give us, O Lord, strategies for employing it. Help us to love the older saints. Not merely in a kind of paternalistic way. Let's not have our affections limited to pity. No, let us really genuinely, deeply from the heart, respect them. Honor them, treasure them, give them double honor indeed. And let all of that lead us to see your great plan and your great usefulness for them. Strengthen our churches, we pray, by strengthening the older ladies, then strengthening the younger women, strengthening our families, saving our children, and transforming the Cretan context in which we all live. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.